Welcome to Artful Conversations, a podcast about arts and cultural management. I'm Anita Latham. And I'm Katrina Ingram. We interview leaders who help shape the world of arts and culture, sharing their stories, insights, and observations. Welcome to Artful Conversations. I'm your host, Katrina Ingram. Today on the show, I am joined by writer and strategist on the creative economy, John Halkins. Before publishing Creative Economies, How People Make Money and Creative Ecologies, Where Thinking is a Proper Job, John Halkins had a successful career working for a number of companies in publishing, TV, film, digital media, and streaming. He has dedicated the last 15 years to lecture and debate about the value of a creative economy. Having worked in over 30 countries, John brings a unique international perspective. Welcome, John. Nice to be here. John, for the benefit of our audience, can you explain your concept and definition of creativity? Yes, I will try. I say that because it's one of those very simple words we all use, quite hard to pin down to a definition. My own definition is it's using ideas to have new ideas. It's a process of using ideas to have new ideas. And you've stated that you feel that all individuals have creativity. How does creativity become a valuable skill? I believe, and it's not just a question of belief, but it's based on quite good research, um, that all children are born with an aptitude, um, an imagination, a memory, a consciousness. And as they develop in the first few months and the first few years, they get better and better at comparing what they are experiencing with what they might experience. And they begin to visualize, partly to make themselves more comfortable physically, partly to make themselves emotionally more content. And then they gradually get control of that process. And out of that, they begin to imagine scenarios that could be better for themselves. Right. And so it sounds like we start out with this sort of innate ability, and then what happens? What, in your opinion, is the biggest limitation to this creativity? Well, something happens to all of us at the age of about four, which is that we go to school. Mm. And we go to school for very good reasons. We need to go to school. We need to learn how to socialize with people outside of the family. But the impact of that um, is to make us behave in ways that we don't really want to behave, to make us sit in rows politely, and to lose that free, wayward, personal, imaginative creativity that up to that moment we have been usually encouraged by our family to give free reign to. That is constrained, and it is constrained usually through most of the years that we are at school. And are there some things that we can do to counteract that or or unlearn that training? I think it depends a lot on the school. Uh, I I was very lucky. I went to a very open and free-ranging school. It depends a lot on the family, whether the family encouraged that. I think siblings can encourage it as well. So, you know, all is not lost. Hmm. Um, And certainly some people can develop their creativity within the school environment, some have to go outside of the school environment. Certainly, schools have a huge responsibility to make sure that as well as teaching the normal curriculum, they do encourage people to understand and use their creativity in their lives. 
And let's make that leap from creativity to creative economy. Can you help us to make that leap? What does it mean to have a creative economy? That is using your creativity not only for your private pleasure and enjoyment and interest, but using it in your job or in your work, which might become your job. So you create a value, you, you create an economic value out of it. Some people do that wholeheartedly and they become artists and professional artists and designers and, and work in film and television and so on and so forth. And some people have other jobs, but they still use a bit of their creativity in their standard job. And you've created an interesting framework around this. You talk about four main elements of a creative economy, that of change, diversity, learning, and adaptation. Could you unpack that framework for us and give us some concrete examples of how these elements can be applied, particularly to an arts organization? Yes, the, 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 this is how I characterize the framework of the creative ecology. And you have to have change, and out of that have to come diversity. The two most important things from the point of view of our conversation, I think, is learning and adaptation. Um, this, this is certainly what we do when we are in the first few months and years. Uh, before we go to school, we learn. We learn very, very fast. Children learn extraordinarily rapidly. They take in all sorts of information and they, they change their behaviour. Hopefully it continues through school. I'm sure it does in most cases. And then after you leave school or university, it's really important that the individual does take responsibility for learning so that they walk around the world and not only, not passively being told what to do, but they challenge what is happening, they learn ways of doing whatever it is they want to do better, and they then adapt their attitudes or their behaviour. The, the, the mark of the creative artist in whatever domain or genre they're working is to try to want, in fact, to be determined to understand something and do it. It's a practical operation and to do it better. Every artist secretly wants to do work that is better than anybody else. Nobody wants to settle for second rate. They want to do something extraordinary. They want to do something that will be the wonder of the world. And they know they may not manage that, but that is the ambition. And so they can only do that by, by learning what everybody else is doing and then in some way doing it better, learning how to do it better. Learning and adapting, and that's the focus of uh, a lot of your work. You talk about the three principles that compose creative ecology, and we talked a little bit about the idea that everyone is creative. The other two principles are around the idea that creativity needs freedom and that freedom needs markets. Can you talk a bit about how you landed on all of those three principles and perhaps unpack a bit more the, the second two, that of creativity needs freedom and this idea of freedom needing markets? Yes, the first principle is, is, is the universality of creativity. And the, the second is this really important point that we have to feel free, we have to be free to express ourselves and to put our ideas out into the world in some way or another. We have to be 
confident that we can do that. We have to be able in practice to do that. And we have to feel that we are surrounded by people who, they might not like our idea, they may think it's crazy and ridiculous, but at least they welcome the fact that we are having ideas. So we want to be in a group, and it could be a company, it could be a city, it could be a whole society, where the act of having a new idea, which is originally different from everything else and is possibly shocking to some people, that that individual act of expressing an idea and managing it is welcomed in the society. And we do get some societies that do indeed welcome new ideas, and we do get some societies that, that don't welcome new ideas. Almost every idea that's new and worthwhile is a little bit disturbing um, and, and, and even a little bit shocking. And we, 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 we want to have a society where that is okay. And that is why, in principle, creativity flourishes in bigger places where there is, where there is a high rate of change and a high level of diversity. I'm not just talking ethnic diversity, but diversity of voice, diversity of style, diversity of appearance, diversity of gender, so that there is a high expectation of novelty. And artists need that in order to feel confident that their work will go out, and at least there might be somebody out there who gets it. Can you think of a, a concrete example of perhaps an idea that is shocking, that, that meets the standards of what you're talking about? Just to give our audience a bit of an example of, of what specifically you mean by, by that. The, I think the most obvious example is the history of, of art in the 20th century. When the Impressionists, to take one, that's the 19th century, the Impressionists, to take one example, at the, really the beginning of this development. Because a new kind of paint had been developed, they were able to take their canvases out of the studio into the fields. And that, to many people, was shocking. You should not go away from the studio. And in fact, there was a certain kind of art which was called studio art. And these people went out into the, into the weather, into the wildness, and, and they painted. And they brought back canvases of a different kind with a different treatment of colour and subject matter. Ordinary, ordinary life treated with different colours. And some of them at the beginning were called fauvistes, which is the French word for, for wild beasts, because people in Paris just thought this was disgusting and wild and inappropriate and impolite. And it wasn't art, really. It really, it really wasn't art. It wasn't suitable stuff to be in the gallery. And it was rejected by many of the big galleries and the public galleries. And all the way through... If you look at Picasso's career from the 1920s through to, indeed, the last few years before he died, his work was considered shocking by many, many people. The, not right at the end of his life, but the, about three or four years before he died, he did some canvases in a new style that almost everybody thought was childish and disgusting and, and shocking. This is the greatest artist of, of the 20th century, one of the greatest artists of all time. He was still producing work that people thought was shocking. And 
I'm choosing art as the example because it is it is easier to understand. It's it's visual. It's there. You can look at it in the books, and you can see how people shocked, and they can they continue to shock. There was a artist coming out of New York in the last um, 10, 15 years who were felt to be deeply, deeply shocking, deeply shocking. And now their work is selling for millions and millions and millions. It's interesting to think about um, things that we perhaps take for granted as maybe having that that shocking value. Can can we talk a bit more about the the last point that you made around freedom needs markets? And this sort of seems to imply some kind of an economic imperative to it. Can you explain that a bit more? Yes. Some people don't like the word markets. And I, I did produce this idea in, in 2007, just before the 2008 financial crash. So not good timing <laughs> on my heart. But anyway, there we go. So what, I, what I'm saying by that is is a market where ideas and goods and services and experiences are transacted, exchanged, um, usually for money, not always for money. We, we, having made our stuff, we, 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 if we want to, we need to be able to put a price tag on it and put it out there in the market. And that's, that's really important. I am talking about the creative economy. I'm not talking about culture or art or just the, the production and supply of stuff. I'm talking about people putting their hands in their pockets and buying stuff. And that's, that's I'm talking about an economic system, buying and selling. And retail is just as important in this system as the, the studio and the production. It, it's, it's really important, this. Um, I, want to, I want to emphasize again and again that I'm talking about an economic system. I'm not just talking about production. And I'm not just talking about non-commercial stuff. I'm talking about stuff that has a added value in commercial terms. Mm-hmm. We need to live off it. Right. Now, you mentioned the city earlier and the role that the city had in, in, has in fostering creativity and fostering art. How does the creative ecology play into creating better cities? I think the, 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 we, we are at the moment reinventing the city where the main economic force is not mining, agriculture or manufacturing. It is creativity and innovation. And we need to think hard about the city of the future. How do we design it? Uh, what sort of building should we have? What resources should we have? And so on and so forth. Um, and what, I, what I'm trying to help people to work out is how to have a policy for the city and how to design and build the city. So to try and apply the principles of ecosystems and ecology to the future of the city is, I think, a very um, interesting and, and, and practical way of looking at it. Um, and I'm in particular interested in the um, the people that are living in the city. And again, to emphasize this again, not just the artists and the people that are making stuff. I use the word stuff to, you know, products and services. But the people who are buying it and experiencing it and... Cities need both. They are 
They are places of exchange, whether it's goods and services, whether it's money, whether it's whether it's meeting someone in a bar, whether it's whether it's falling in love with somebody, whether it's making new friends, whatever it is. It, it, it's a it, it's a high volume, a high speed, extremely fast place of exchange. So, to look at this in terms of ecosystems and ecologies, I think helps me anyway to understand how artists and indeed the whole value chain from production through to distribution and pricing and and retailing, how it works. That's great. And I, I want to get back to a conversation about cities and creative cities in particular, but I think we'll take a little bit of a detour and talk a bit about the role of arts managers. Um, so I'm wondering about your work in the context of arts management. What do you think are the differences between the roles of arts managers versus the role of artists in building a creative ecology? They they need each other. Um, there are some artists, and and um, using the word as anybody who's creative, who are good at handling their own affairs, and they like to do that. And Although artists are usually, or often anyway, regarded as hopeless at business, the artists I know are extremely good at business. I would put up a film producer or a TV producer up against anybody else from any industry to strike a deal. They're very good negotiators. Um, but as, as the business gets more complicated, and as some artists don't want to spend a lot of time doing that, the need to have managers, agents, business affairs, lawyers, all those people um, is, is increasing. And they are critical, um, absolutely critical, to the functioning of a creative economy. Uh, again, I'm not just looking at the guys who are making it, who are themselves being creative and creating new products and services, I'm looking at how that gets out into the market, how it is priced appropriately, not too high, but equally not too low, and how it is marketed and sold to people that want it. So the role of the agent, who might be the publisher, the printer, or the deal maker, or the copyright lawyer, or the trademark lawyer, or the patent lawyer, is, is critical to this. And they are, in numerical terms, much more numerous than the people that are having the original idea. Hmm. I was wondering about that, just in terms of the ratio of arts hmm. managers to artists and what that looked like. Well, in, in most industries, the, 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 manager, the managers are way outnumber the hardcore creative people. And... I think there's a a need um, in colleges and universities to not only educate people to be the the practitioners, if you like, the, the, the core artists, the core creative people, but to educate people who fulfill that um, transactional role, that management role. Um, it's a deeply satisfying job. Um, it can make you extremely rich. It's absolutely necessary for the functioning of a creative economy. And access to it is much easier than actually being that, that 
hardcore creative person. So, um, I mean, I, the, the, the ratios would be like north of 90 to 10, you know. I mean, mm. um, it could be 95 to 5, it, with the 95 being the management. Very interesting. I know another huge trend that's impacted pretty much every asset or aspect of our life is digital. And I'm curious to know about digital technology being an influence in how people communicate ideas and share resources. And how do you see this technology impacting the future of how people and ideas connect? I think it's already having a huge influence, particularly the further down the value chain you go. I think that when you are sitting in front of a blank sheet of paper or your um, even when you're actually writing code I mean it could be that um, when you are thinking but to go back to when you're thinking of a character a narrative a design the, the the way you use your brain and the way you focus and the way you make your decisions has not changed that much we shouldn't get too excited by it the, the act of someone learning and adapting and creating and focusing and putting down on paper, that hasn't changed too much, right at the top of the value chain. The more we get down the value chain, digital has, has more, more impact. And um, in, in setting up new relationships between people and between the artist and the agent, and the, I hate the word consumer because that's only one role that we have. We are increasingly fans. Apple doesn't so much have consumers, it has fans. Um, musicians have always had fans and they now realize that whereas the music labels used to have consumers for their products, um, let's say physical units, CDs, let's say, um, the musician now streams and has fans. And the musicians that are successful at streaming, putting stuff out there in the market, not once a year, but like continuously, they have fans. So we, we, might, be, we might be customers, we might be consumers, we are increasingly fans, whether it's hardware or music. And that's, that's through digital. Right. And how do, you, how do you develop fans? How do you develop groups of people that are willing to take a risk with your art, with your organization? How does that occur? You, you put something in front of them that they get excited by. And as, as, they, as they want to know what you're doing, you give them more and more. And you, um, you, you, you treat them in special ways. Um, Lady Gaga was, was a pioneer of this and her manager, who was called Troy, was, was, was outstanding in his ability to create these, this pool of fans and he treated them genuinely um, differently from people who were first-time listeners. So it's a very skilled business and whereas the managers were first to do it, now the artists, the musicians themselves are doing it. And they are they use streaming, they use live performance, they build up a, a group of fans. And what I'm saying is that that model of establishing a direct relationship and keeping your 
profile vis- highly visible uh, almost continually through digital media um, is the way that started in music but is now getting to be prevalent in almost every sector. We touched a bit on the concept of pricing, and I'm just wondering if you can speak to the concept of pricing as it kind of intersects with digital, perhaps even using the streaming music as an example of, of where you see the value from a pricing perspective. How do you know what is too much, too little in terms of setting price? It's, it's hard. And I, the, the, but um, you use streaming. Music, in a way, is the... Is, is the obvious model partly because it requires very little bandwidth so you can get it out you 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 you're the first to get it out there i mean video took much longer but so in a way it's a pioneer but so you get it out there as quickly and as often and continually as you can and then you also have a lot of performance to back that up but i wouldn't like to think that that the music industry musicians have stumbled upon a model that is easily uh, applicable to other sectors. Um, when you get down to the level of, of production costs, pricing, distribution, you tend, if you're competitive, to get very industry-specific. And the, the film industry, which I work in a bit, and the TV industry, which I work in a bit, um, has completely different pricing models. And I think that will continue for some time. And if you look at brand owners, whether it's, I don't know, like, like Ferrari or a, or a clothing label or a uh, celebrity who has a brand that, that he or she puts on to a range of different items, um, the pricing models are very different industry by industry. But, but that's the brand owners are becoming more and more important and they could come from anywhere. They could come from manufacturing, they could come from um, design, they could come from hardware or software, they could come from garments, they could come from sport. You know, the, the, the interplay of sport, TV, music, fashion is increasingly intimate. Not always a good thing. It sounds very, very all-encompassing. I'm wondering what you see as some of the future challenges for managers in the arts or other creative industries, given all of this change that's happening around us. It's an extremely tough and competitive business. And the good managers are worth a lot of money, they know. In a way, it makes it harder to get into the business because the guys that you're, who are already there and you're competing with are very skillful of what they do and they can call in favours and they know the deals that they should be done. You have to do your own deals in terms that you, you know to be good for you. Um, most people don't know that before they start finding out. Uh, the temptation is to go to an agent or a distributor, could be a TV platform, it could be a music label, it could be a uh, design house, and to accept their terms. That's the, in a way, that's the old model. And if you don't know the terms or that you should have, you tend to accept the deal on their terms. 
And that's usually a bad thing. But, you know, in the past, one didn't have an option. Now one has an option. It is much harder. But one is increasingly seeing it is possible to um, go your own way if you can use digital media to get your name, your brand, your, your art out there to the public. Great. Let's go back and talk about creative cities. You've talked about the topic of placemaking and urban generation in past interviews, and there's a growing understanding that arts and culture plays a huge generating, regenerating, and building of creative cities. How does having a creative economy help revitalize the other industries within a city? And do you have specific examples that you could share? There's an organization called the World Cities Cultural Forum, which looks at the culture being provided, offered, and existing within, within, within global cities. And right at the start of that project, which, which, which launched about seven or eight years ago, it was discovered, it was found, that the determining factor in world cities, cities that we regard as world cities, was their culture. It was not the fact that they were a capital city or not a capital city. It was not, it was not their size. It was the culture. We, we regard a big city with no culture as not interesting, not a world city. It does imply it is rather cut off from the rest of the world if it has no culture. So if you look at the creativity and culture in a city then if it doesn't exist, it's not a world city. If it's flourishing and, and wonderful, then it's, it's likely to be a world city. And we then looked at the number of different levels of, of, um, of, of world cities culture. And we looked right the way from the big libraries and the big concert halls and the, the big museums all the way down or sidewards to... A, a very wide range of other activities, and they went from the number of bookshops, um, the number of new bookshops, the number of second-hand bookshops, the number of bars. Bars are very important. Um, cities with no bars are hopeless. You know, you need bars, you need restaurants. Um, the number of nightclubs, the, 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 the opportunities for people to stay out late, to have food and drink after 10 o'clock at night to live, not necessarily 24 hours, but outside the, the nine to five, where you work the nine to five, you then go out, you may have a meal, then you go home, you're all tucked up in bed early. I mean, I like to be tucked up in bed early, but you know, when I was young, I wanted to stay out late. You need to have places where people can stay out late. So are these the typical cities that we might think of, the New Yorks, the Londons, are, are those the world-class cultural hubs that you speak of is that what you mean there's a hard core of about actually not that many let's say six or eight world cities that are the ones you've mentioned tokyo is there as well shanghai is there as well sydney is there as well um, and they have this offer but there are a lot of other cities that are scoring high Johannesburg scores high. Uh, Helsinki scores high. And actually there's another interesting division that we found, which is that there's, 
there's creative cities and there's livable cities. And if you rate for creativity, you end up with one ranking. And if you rate for livability, you end up with a different ranking. And there's, there's interest, there's a lot of interest in livability, which tend to be smaller places where the pace of life is slightly easier, where the air is likely to be slightly better, as opposed to the famous creative cities that are increasingly congested, contested, noisy, very competitive, totally exhausting, very high housing and property prices. And yes, they have an extraordinary and diverse collection of people doing extraordinary things, but it is, it's tough to get a foothold in those cities. So this distinction between livability and creativity is really interesting. And I have to wonder, in terms of choosing one path or the other, are these mutually exclusive concepts? Is there an intersection where the two connect? Do we want, you know, in, in the pursuit of creative cities, does that mean decreased livability? Some people would argue that was the case, yes. I, partly because London is my home city, I... I like to live in London, even though it is incredibly congested and noisy and all of that. But I do know people who regard it as altogether too noisy and, and competitive. And there are, if you look around Europe, a lot of the new design ideas, product design in particular, are not coming out of London. They're coming out of Zurich. Switzerland has a very high ranking. They're coming out of the cities in, uh, in, in the Netherlands and Belgium. They're coming out of uh, Nordic cities as well, um, where people, Copenhagen's another place, which people rate very highly, very high quality of life, um, the right size. You can get around it easily. It's not too expensive but it has an extremely active um, population which scores very highly on design and on the quality of life. London, for many people, does not have a good quality of life. Tokyo has a, an appalling quality of life. It produces extraordinary, wonderful stuff. But for most people there, particularly young people, life is really tough. Mm. Let's go a little closer to home and talk a bit about Canada. We are a large country with a very small population. Um, we don't even really have that many big cities in Canada. And I'm just wondering what challenges this presents in terms of building a stronger national creative ecology. Yes, I, I've been in Canada three days. So anything I say about Canada should be taken with a pinch of salt. Really. Um, I th I've been. I know from my work in TV and film that that Toronto, in particular, but also Vancouver, are regarded as highly attractive places with good studios and good locations. So, in that area at least, Canada is scoring very high. I think in other areas, I'm just not familiar with it, and I and I I can't make a judgment on it. Um, I was saying the visual arts. 
there are people in this city that are doing extraordinary work. But I think you're not well known outside of the artists who are doing that work, and it is extraordinary, are not well known outside of Canada. And that's a shame. And I think that if someone were to, and I know people, I met some people today who have been knocking on the doors of museums and art galleries in Europe to get shows, and they're finding it really hard. And that's, I guess, because Canada is not known as a place where good art is being produced. Right? So it's hard to get an exhibition outside of Canada. So what can be done to change that dynamic? Is there a role for government to play in that? Are there other um, things that need to be brought to bear to change that? I think government has a role. It, 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 it can't do everything, but government, I don't know what its, what its uh, current performance is, but certainly in the UK and in most of Europe and in, in many other countries, the government does have a major support program to support the distribution of the arts and culture of the country, um, not only in a non-profit way for cultural purposes, but it helps people to do business overseas in the arts and culture. So it helps people to export um, creative goods and services. And I think maybe the Canada government could do more, but I... I hate to say that really because I don't know what they're doing at the moment. I'm sure they're doing lots of good stuff. All I would say is that they are not known for doing lots of good stuff in my hometown. Right. Well, let's talk about the UK because I know there have been a number of policy changes that took place over the last 15 or 20 years. And that has really changed the mindset of how government thinks about investing in the arts. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yes, we, we had a government, the Labour government that got into power in 1997 and they launched this program on the creative economy which was first of all a message to government to say you may not be aware of this but if you add up all the creative industries it's a huge part of the not a huge part of the economy but it's a very significant part of the economy this was in 1997 um, it is now likely to become the biggest sector uh, next year or the year after um, in the whole economy. And the, and the Prime Minister, Tony Blair, was very clear. He said that this is the future of the British economy. So he, he said to his government colleagues, we have to take this really seriously. And we have to take it seriously economically and we have to look at all our policies to make sure they support the development of the creative economy. And that gave a... A bit, a bit of a kick to government. It reassured that the industries that they were indeed loved by government, which was some of them appreciated that, some of them didn't. Um, it sent a message to the country that if your son or daughter were wanting to work in these industries, far from it being a soft option, which up to that moment many parents probably did think it was, you know, not a serious job unlikely to pay anything, risky, you know, not a good thing. Why don't you become a doctor or a lawyer or something? It sent a message to the parents that actually being in the creative economy was the most important thing you could do. 
And that message, which was taken on board very quickly throughout the country, through, through, through endless, endless lobbying by Tony Blair, and particular a minister called Chris Smith, that sunk home. So the mood in the country was that the credit is far from being marginal and risky and, and not proper work and a bit of a soft option, which by God, they're not. They were seen as the secret to the future of the British economy. And that was really exciting. That was the major impact. That's a huge impact, just yeah, to yeah. Le- legitimise that choice. It needed someone right at the top. It needed, the pri- it needed a new, young prime minister who, who believed it mm. to make that statement. And it needed the minister, Chris Smith, to make, on average, I mean, two or three speeches a day, just saying it again and again and again, and talking to people in film and television, in digital media and design, Games as well. Games are really important um, to say, come on, we really want to help you. What can we do? The way we make policy in the UK is a government doesn't really make policy. A government's far too busy doing stuff. And it does, it, what it does, it, 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 it wants industry to make proposals. It wants industry to do the research, to come up with the proposal for legislation. Government's job is to look at that proposal and say, well, we don't like this because it'll have an impact that you hadn't thought about on another area of the economy or another area of society, or it conflicts with some basic principles that we've agreed. Go away and have another think. Industry has another think, does more research, and says, how about this? And the government says, well, we quite like it. Yeah, we'll put that out for consultation. So it throws the onus on policymaking to industry, who will then work with academics and think tanks and so on and so forth, and consultants. It, government itself, the economy is too complicated. Government itself can't sort of hunker down and work over the weekend and come up with a policy. It, 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 modern societies are too complicated for that. So the hallmark of the way we ran our policies on the creative economy were to say to industry, what do you want? And if there is a net economic gain, and you've got to prove that, and our Treasury, our Minister of Finance, will check every figure in your plan. We do economic impact analysis. And we're going to be very, very detailed about this. If it passes those tests, we will approve your plan and put it through the legislation. It sounds like there's some interesting lessons that we can learn from that experience. We are coming up to the end of our time. I just have a couple of questions for you as we conclude. In addition to your own books and work, are there other resources you might recommend for people who want to better understand the topics we've covered today? Gosh, I, I uh, talk to people. I mean, the best, the best way to find out what's happening is to go talk to someone who is trying to do it. If you want to understand the art market, go to the, go to the creators. Go to the artists, yes, but the artists will be very particular about what they do and they won't really want to talk to you. Mm. Um, go to the creators. The creators, uh, it's almost a new, it's not a completely new profession, but it's a new, it's a new profession that's come up in the last 10, 15 years. And it's a very skilled job. When I was talking about 
um, that ratio between the creative artists and the managers, the, the people working in a big art museum outnumber the artists. And they're absolutely critical. And th th this is a bit of a long-winded answer to your question, but the reason that the British creative economy is flourishing to the extent it is, and it's just the same for the American creative economy, is that we treat really seriously those management jobs of, of managing the production, the distribution, the marketing, the promotion, the retailing, the pricing of creative stuff. Those people, we think, are really important. We, we train them well, we reward them well, we pay them well, we regard them as critical to the whole enterprise. That's great. And is there anything that you wish to add to the conversation that we haven't covered today? I would say two things. Be really ambitious. Be, be more ambitious perhaps than you are at the moment. Be really ambitious and good luck. Well, John, on behalf of McEwen University, I'd like to say thank you so much for joining me today on this podcast. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much. It's been fun. Katrina and Annetta here. John Halkins, I'm so glad I wasn't aware of how uh, how much of a rock star John is, because I think I might have been more nervous interviewing him. <laughs> yeah, he's a bit, he is definitely a bit of a rock star. Absolutely. One of the things that struck me uh, when he was talking about um, our, our levels of creativity, that we all essentially have the ability to be creative. Um, some of us develop that professionally, others of us perhaps don't. And I thought that was an interesting point. Yeah, I think it's really clever, you know, from a, um aspect of that real encouraging, no, I'm really going to have to start that again. Yeah, I think it's really clever the way he mentioned that he believed that, you know, we're all born with that in us and that there's opportunity and excitement out there. I think it's what we do with it that's um that is important, really, um, as we develop and grow. And, you know, some of us are artists and some of us aren't, but some of us can manage artists. They, we sure can. And it seems like there are there are lots of opportunities on that front in terms of job opportunities and prospects to be an arts manager, which is really exciting for yeah, students in this program yeah, to know yeah, yeah. that there's just a lot of potential yeah. out there for them. And I think one of the interesting things about um, John is, is he is – his thinking is with a group of people who think very similar to him around the creative city stuff mm -hmm. and that how important that creative city stuff is and how important it is that you have creative, the creatives in your city mm -hmm. because by doing that you affect change in your city. But I think it's important what you were saying before, when we would have been talking about this is that it doesn't mean those cities are easy places to live. Yeah, that really hit home with me is when he was talking about the fact that there are super creative cities. He mentioned Tokyo and London and the kinds of places that you think of as world class. And there's high amounts of creativity in these cities. 
but the quality of life isn't necessary necessarily there from a livability standpoint. And I think there's this tension that happens in ter- as we pursue creative city models and we want our cities to be more creative, is there's this tension between creativity and quality of life that really we want to strike a balance with. Yeah. So I think that was really interesting to note as we look at creative economies and how to uh, move forward with that model in our city. Yeah, I think it's really important. And I think, you know, as John said, he, he talks from a UK base. He's not Canadian um, and doesn't talk from a Canadian base. But I think we can, as as we move forward, we can learn from the people who have done it. It doesn't matter where in the world they are. But I think if we broaden our eyes and broaden our horizons, we can take their learnings on and in some ways not make the same mistake. Um, and I think it's, I really like the fact that For me, the take-home is don't make the assumption that by doing creative in your city, it's going to make your city suddenly an easy place to live. Yeah, Um, absolutely a great assumption. Now, this wasn't on the audio, but I have it on good authority that John had a great time here in Edmonton. So we, I think in terms of world-class entertainment, we really wowed him. Oh, that's wonderful. That is really great. And it was a great interview. This show was created by executive producer Annetta Latham, producer Katrina Ingram, technical producer Paul Johnston, research assistant Rael Lockwood, theme music by Emily DeFour, and cover art by Constanza Pasher. Artful Conversations is a production of McEwen University, all rights reserved.